Just want you to know, since this Chicago boys moved down here, some of you think I can't speak Texan. So here it is. Here's my best shot at it this morning. I got a hitch in my giddy up. But I'm still able to giddy up. I don't know, got a, just a little spasm this morning in my hip. Not a big deal. Thank you for being present with us this morning. Um, we're in a study of uh, the Gospel of Matthew. I, the further we go through the Gospel of Matthew, the greater I have a, an appreciation for Matthew. Sometimes we think, well, he was a tax collector and he was uh, covetous uh, and he was despised by the people in general and his friends were tax collectors. The man had an amazing understanding of the Old Testament scriptures. I take it he got something in the home, he got something from the synagogue, and then I look at the organization of the Gospel of Matthew. He didn't just sit down and say, okay, let me see what I can write here, and I don't know where I'm going. No, this thing is well planned. It is well put together, and so I'm going to open in prayer, and then we're going to look at the big picture of Matthew and then bring it down because we are in a transition uh, segment here in Matthew, his followers, he's called them, they followed him around, but they, they, they're just watching, they're just observing. He goes to uh, Peter's mother-in-law's uh, house, and he goes in, and he takes along a few of his disciples, and they watch, they're learning, but they're not practically doing yet. So what we're about to encounter I, I would call it like a short-term missionary trip because we're going to see that Jesus sends him out, and this is so important to look at this contextually because some of the things here aren't, if, if you try and say that's true for today for everybody, then you're going to miss the point here. He sends them out on a short-term mission trip, and we'll see that they come back and they report to him, and then later on he's going to do the same thing for the 72. So it's a transition from what Jesus has been doing. He's been teaching them, and okay, now I'm going to send you out to do it. Now I'm going to send you out to do it. Lord, we look to heaven above. You're the true teacher of Scripture. You draw people ultimately into your kingdom. You, you convict us of sin through the Spirit. You cause us to recognize our need of a Savior. And then we, we stumble at times. We, we have to need to learn to value the Word of God more importantly than we do. We need to hide your word in our hearts so that we might not sin against you. So do a work of grace in each person's heart, starting with my own. Thank you for a place of service. Thank you for the people 
around me. Thank you for elders who hold me accountable. Thank you for the wives. Thank you for the deacons. Thank you for people that may not be in recognized formal leadership, but are godly people here this morning who pray, who love you. Strengthen us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning we're going to make a transition to the expansion of the Master's mission, particularly looking at workers for the harvest. So I want to, if I, if I reviewed the whole thing, um, the only person left might be my wife about 5 or 6 o'clock this evening, and she would probably be struggling. So this is just going to be a quick overview of the big picture here, and we want to recognize what the major theme is of Matthew. And it's, Behold, the promise Messiah, the one promised in the Old Testament, Messiah, now Christos, Christ, the anointed one, Jesus, the one who saves his people from their sins, Emmanuel, God with us. And he's going to move from that to the one who now has all authority in heaven and on earth and the one who is with us always. So we want to keep the big picture in mind as we're working through. And I've people uh, outline the book of Matthew differently. I have found this one probably most convincing to me. But an outline is only there to try and help us think through. How, how do you think through something as long as Matthew? It's 28 chapters, Mark is 16, Luke is 24, volume 2 of Luke, uh, Acts is 28, um, John is, is 21. Most of the epistles are pretty short. We can get a handle on them. So we know some passages maybe from the Gospels that, that are so striking, they stick in, in our memory. But how do you put the whole thing together? Some do it in a threefold manner. I think this is the most helpful way for me that there are five discourses. You're not familiar with a discourse. It's just a big section on the teaching of Scripture. And then there are five narratives, or this is how you move. We're moving ultimately to the cross of Christ, the reason for which he came. So this, this is how... He's moving in ministry, and then Matthew will stop. And so we looked at the Sermon on the Mount. Now we're heading into the section this morning, Instruction for the Twelve. We're going to hit the parables of the kingdom of heaven. Dylan did an excellent job this morning kind of overviewing those for us. Um, parables of the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. And a mystery, again, is something that wasn't revealed in the Old Testament. And then we'll look at values, relationships in the kingdom, 18. We'll come to the Olivet Discourse. And woven in there are five narratives. So um, here's how I put the whole thing together. It has an introduction, the start of public ministry. You go narrative, discourse, narrative, discourse, and then you'll run all the way down and we'll come to the passion, the death, the burial, the resurrection, the ascension uh, of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So, so this is Matthew, very skilled in his literary ability. I take it that probably 
collecting taxes, keeping records, things like that. God has greatly equipped him, even when he didn't know the Savior, that he is going to write this gospel for us and point us to the Savior. If we leave this morning and we haven't understood this, we've missed the main, the main point of Matthew. It points us to Jesus, to Jesus the Christ. So each one of these then narrative, discourse, narrative, discourse, there are transitions between them. So I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 4, verse 23, and watch how the first one works right after uh, John the Baptist has been preaching, prepare the way. We've looked at the baptism of Jesus, the temptation of Jesus, and then we come down right before this great sermon. Matthew makes a transition for us in 4.23. Jesus went through all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. Notice, teaching and preaching and healing. But if you put healing there without the teaching and the preaching, you know, there were people that were healed by Jesus that we have no record that they ever believed upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, they would be thankful to heal of their, of their maladies, some of paralysis of different issues, but without knowing the Savior. Ultimately, that's short-lived. And some of the people that were healed are going to get sick again. So, and not just one or two diseases, everyone that came to him, every disease, every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, paralytics. He healed them all. And so it's not surprising that great crowds followed him from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and even beyond the Jordan. So then we transition then in, in from that to the great Sermon on the Mount, his teaching, and then go to the end of it in chapter 8, verse 1, Actually, I'll go to 728, when Jesus finished these sayings. So here's the transition back into works again, back into works. So you have words and works. You have his teaching. He doesn't teach like the scribes and the Pharisees. This is authoritative. Unless we pay attention to his teaching, build our lives on what he says, and his teaching points to himself. Unless we do that, we will all perish eternally. And then he vindicates his teaching by what he does, the miracles. Remember the, boy, to have friends like that would chop a hole in the roof <laughs> and lower them down. And it said Jesus saw their faith, not only the four friends, but the paralytic. And he has the Pharisees sitting around looking for some reason to accuse him. And he says, which is easier? Which is easier? To say your sins are forgiven 
or to say, get up off of that thing, arise, <laughs> take your pallet and go home. So he told him to get up, take his pallet, go home, and he did. So here's, here's works that are authenticating who Jesus is in terms of his purpose. Now, when we come down, uh, let, let me just talk about uh, here Galilee. This, this is the great Galilean ministry, and um, notice on on the top is uh, uh, to the north. You're going to have Syria. What uh, you go up into Lebanon. That now right down below it says Judea. Let me give you a different a different map here, and so you're going to have Samaria, uh, Syrophoenicia. You're going to have the Decapolis, and so Josephus, a first-century uh, historian, records that at the time of Jesus there were some 200 cities and villages in the region of Galilee alone, an area of about uh, 40 miles wide, 70 miles long. Josephus writes, the cities are numerous and the multitudes of villages everywhere are crowded with men owing to the fertility, fertility of the soil so that the smallest of them contains about 15,000 inhabitants. Many of you have been up to, to Galilee and, and that reason, the Jezreel Valley, and boy, how rich that soil is up there. And if, if Josephus is correct you extrapolate from that, then Galilee had at least 3 million people, and most of them would have had some exposure to Jesus, either directly or indirectly through reports of him. So the cities, those that probably had some type of fortification around them, villages that were, were unwalled, we have these records that Jesus is going through, and the, the fame... Of him, look. If I if I had uh, a family member that was ill, I'm 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 taking him to Jesus. Uh, without exception, he he could heal. So we come to this second uh, report here, and watch how it parallels the first one in Matthew. Go to Matthew nine thirty five, and it's going to be the second summary because. It's going to do the very same thing. Matthew's going to say, okay, watch, watch here. We're going into another section of teaching. So we have introduction. We have works. We have his words. We have more works that authenticate his words. And now we're going to go back into another section of teaching. So we look in 935. Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues. And the first emphasis, again, is proclaiming, heralding the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction without exception. You, 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 you come to him, and he was doing the healing. Now, it's, it, it's good to pause here. For a minute and ask this question. Um, 
What is the gospel of the kingdom? What is this message that he was proclaiming? Now, I don't expect all of you out there to agree with me because this is highly debated. Today, you'll still see uh, students of uh, Scripture trying to wonder, what, what is this gospel of the kingdom? Is that different from what Paul proclaimed? Um, some will hold uh, a great uh, difference. Is, and the question centers on this. Is the kingdom of God or heaven? I see no distinction between those two. The kingdom of God and the king, kingdom of heaven is like Matthew's signature expression. He just uses kingdom of God a couple of times. But if you look at the parallel synoptic accounts, I don't see how you can possibly make a distinction. But the question is, is it both present and future? Some say, no, it's only future. Um, and if it is present, how does this line up with the Old Testament prophecies of a messianic kingdom? So, this is, this is uh, I found this, this helpful summary um, that I, I took uh, from MacArthur, his gospel on Mark at the first occurrence there. So, I would say this. The kingdom that Jesus proclaimed ought to be understood in three dimensions. It's a spiritual kingdom. I still hold to a millennial kingdom and then an eternal kingdom. And Christ, when he came and he preached the good news of salvation, he established what many call, and I myself would say, his spiritual kingdom in the hearts of all who believe. Now, not everybody holds to that, and they would say, no, the kingdom is only future. Christ's kingdom is being advanced even now as sinners come to saving faith in him and are transferred out of the domain of darkness into the realm of the Son of God. To follow Jesus Christ is to seek the expression and honor of his kingdom and his righteousness. That's the spiritual and invisible sense of the kingdom. We'll come to in Matthew chapter 13 and following when he makes known the mysteries of the kingdom. Some would say, no, He's just saying, don't take that stuff literally in the Old Testament. I say, no, he's not, that's not what he's saying. He is explaining that their expectation, let me tell you what is taking place now. Um, so in the present, let me go back. My understanding is that the second coming, the king will establish his kingdom in a visible and temporal way here on earth. And during that time, I understand the millennial promises of the Old Testament will be fulfilled. Jesus will reign as the king in Jerusalem, and the entire uh, world will be under his rule. But for now, in the present, the kingdom consists of all who embrace Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. The king rules over He's resident in the hearts of those who belong to him. So when you talk about a kingdom, now it, it doesn't always refer to exactly the same thing when you look at it. 
When you look at a metaphor in the Bible, you have to look at it contextually in the same way with the kingdom. You have to have a kingdom. You have to have a king. And you have to have a realm. He has to be ruling over someone, and he has to be exercising authority. And so um, I am not saying that there is no future kingdom. Certainly, we're all, if you read your Bible, we're going to agree that there's an eternal kingdom. But is there also an earthly kingdom when he comes back? But for now, the king rules over, is resident in the hearts of those who belong to him. His kingdom advances one soul at a time, and it will continue until he returns to establish earthly reign followed by his eternal reign. So actually, people who are disparate in their understanding of eschatology have come a whole lot closer together in terms of recognizing, in some sense, there has to be a, a some sense, a some form of the kingdom here. Now, let me show you the text why I would say that. Uh, Matthew 12, 28, if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. Some take that's proleptic. They just say that refers to the future. I say no. It, Jesus is saying now. Jesus said to the chief priests and elders, truly I say to you, tax collectors and prostitutes, and this is a present tense, are entering into the kingdom of God before you. Now, the next one is highly debated, Luke 17, 20, being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come. He said, look, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed with signs, or and I would also say in the way that they had a false understanding and expectation that the king's going to come, he's going to be triumphant immediately, he's going to crush those in Rome, and, and he says no. Uh, look, the kingdom uh, of God is in the midst of you. Some would say that that's Jesus the king. I would say it's, it's within you, a right translation of that in their hearts. And I would say this is verified when we go to Acts 26, 18 through 20. Paul's in his defense there, um, and he says, here's what God, he's, he's recounting his conversion experience on the Damascus Road, and he says, here's what God called me to do. To open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me, that the Gentiles should repent, turn to God, and perform deeds in keeping with repentance. And I think Colossians 1.13 is in accordance with that, where it says, The Father has delivered us from the power of darkness, and He's conveyed. He's transferred us into the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. So why, why is this um, important? Well, this is, this is what has been proclaimed, and this is what he's going to send out his disciples to teach and preach. In other words, if you repent of your sins and you believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ, it's not either and, it's both. It's both. 
So repentance means I have to have some understanding of sin. And I have to have a desire to turn from it. It does not mean at that instant that suddenly you become perfect or there's no need for what we call progressive sanctification or growth in growth in grace but you have to have something has to have happened that you have understood sin and you're going to turn from it and then faith emphasizes the positive aspect the one to whom you're turning the Lord Jesus Christ so we look at this um then in terms of going back to uh, 9.36. So in this transition, this is what Jesus has, has been doing. He's, he's again teaching. Uh, the, the, no wonder crowds were pressing upon him. No wonder his fame had gone out. He's gone through all of them there in, in Galilee on a second tour. And when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were, now ESV does harassed and helpless, I would do that, harass, comes from a word to be, to be trodden down um, and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. This is, this is an Old Testament metaphor in a number of places. First Kings, you go to Ezekiel chapter 36. That's one of the problems of bad shepherds. Remember, Jesus was rebuking the bad shepherds. The only thing you, you bad shepherds are concerned about is you, you fleece the sheep. You don't care for them. And they're out there, they're, they're distressed, they're, they're lost. Jesus had a, had a different view as he looked out. I, I was rebuked. Mon and I went over to visit her, her mom on uh, late Friday, Friday evening. And uh, it was late. We hadn't eaten supper. By the way, um, those, those of you who have visited folks that are, can't come out like uh, Evelyn Bell down through the years, and some of you go over and visit my mother-in-law. Now, maybe, you know, folks don't know about it. But God knows about it. God knows about it. So I, I just want to say publicly thank you. I see my mother-in-law. I say, how you doing? She says, I'm lonely. I'm lonely. This, this metaphor, sheep without a shepherd, I, I do not take the position that sheep are stupid, as, as some say. No, they need... They need someone to lead them. They need Psalm 23. They need Yahweh to be their shepherd. And the priests, the religious leaders, they weren't, they weren't doing it. And so Jesus rebuked them. And he says, I'm going to be their shepherd. And then at the end of that, and he says, my servant David will be their shepherd. And here he is, here's the good shepherd, and he looks out. And so we went to a restaurant afterwards, and I looked at people who they don't look like me. 
They don't act like me. <laughs> Their priorities that night from what they were doing wasn't mine. And, and at first I just kind of, you know, and then I said, this passage came to my mind. Do I really care for people like that? Do I just want to minister for people who are, who are like me? Or do, or do I really care about people? Well, Jesus looked out and he saw the crowds and he had compassion on them. There's, there's a great little track by B.B. Warfield on the emotional life of our Lord. And he rightly points out that this verb, splonknizomai, your, your splonknizomai, that, that would be what they would use like your, your gut, your, your guts, it's your feelings. Jesus, he had genuine emotions. He looked out and he saw the people. And he was emotionally moved with compassion uh, for them. Um, it's, it's a great word. Nine, nine times, almost, and it's, it's just in the synoptic gospels. Now the noun is used elsewhere, but just in, it, he, he was moved. He, and he was not only moved with compassion, he did something. The sight of suffering always stirred him. It's used of both deep and tender in, in its meaning. Um, it has a, has a heart yearning. One has well written. There never lived a man who had such a passion for men as Jesus. He lived to win them out of their distress, sinful, needy lives up to a new level. His last act was dying to win men. And he told us, go and make disciples of all nations. And so here, we not only have this summary, but then we're told about the compassion of Jesus, which should challenge us. Now watch what happens. And then he said to his disciples, now I don't know that this is just the 12 here. I, I would agree with some that this is probably more than just the 12. But he says to his disciples this statement. The harvest is plentiful, but the labors are few. Therefore, pray, and not just pray, but pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest field. You, you want to have a picture of the harvest? You go to John chapter 4, and there he is with the uh, woman at the well, and um, his disciples have gone into, into Sychar to buy some food, and, and they come back out, and they just catch the tail end of the conversation there. And they're, they're amazed he's talking to a woman, let alone a, a Samaritan woman. And she has gone back in and she's, come see a man who told me all that I've ever done. And so now they're coming out to hear Jesus. And when I see that in John chapter 4, and he says, look up, behold, the fields are whitened to harvest. He's not talking just about the physical fields there. It probably is about four months away from harvest time. But he's seeing Samaritans coming out there. And he says, look, look, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. So, so there's, a, there, there's a harvest. And the first thing... 
that we want to get right here is that there's, there's an appeal. Um, Isaiah, who will go for me? I'm not saying that's irrelevant. But often we miss this. I have asked God to burn this text in my life. Of all the things that I pray for, God, help me to pray this one. Lord of the harvest. You know what Lord means? He's master. He's sovereign. Remember back in Matthew chapter 7, the warning. Many will call me kurios, kurios. They're going to call me Lord, Lord, but they don't, they don't depart from anomia, from wickedness. He's the sovereign Lord. So you, you pray to the Lord of the harvest. He's sovereign. And that word for send out is actually used. It's the same verb when the Spirit thrust out Jesus into the temptation. He'll thrust out workers into his harvest field. And so from an area of human responsibility, if we don't have enough workers for the harvest, what should we do? Start another campaign? Try and lay a guilt trip on people? No! Call out to the Lord of the harvest. Oh, God! We see that people are out there, they're lost, and you have people that you'll call to yourself. So we're, we're calling out, send out reapers into the harvest field. Boy. All right, we have the Lord's table this morning. I'm not going to finish this, this text. Let me wrap it up this way. If we, learn, if we turn to Luke, we would find out that this, you know, Luke emphasizes the prayer life of Jesus in particular. And before he did this, you know what he did? He went out and spent the whole night in prayer to the Father. An important decision. We, all, we ought always to pray, but this is such a critical one. He, he's out there praying, Lord, who are these men that I'm going to uh, call and, and commission. And so he didn't make a mistake in one of them being Judas. And he gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out, to heal every disease and every affliction. So now the Lord of the harvest is going to send out others into the harvest field. Oh, we'll find out about these men. I just, I, I don't have time to go through all, all uh, the plan for the progress of the master's uh, mission there. There's, there's an older writer. Um, S.D. Gordon, he lived in the late 1800s, early 1900s. He's written a number of little booklets, uh, a quiet uh, talk with Jesus, quiet thing like this. I, I'm not going to endorse all of his theology, but he, he writes a fictional account. And it's kind of striking. It, it never really occurs because Gabriel wouldn't, wouldn't ask that. I think he knew more than that. But he says, okay, so Jesus ascends to heaven, and he gets there, and uh, Gabriel approaches him and he says, uh, so what's your plan now? You came back. He says, oh, I, I appointed a few men 
Peter, James, John, some others. And he goes, those men, they're going to care. I, I, I've seen humans. I know what they do. You're going to trust those men with this, the importance of this kingdom plan? He says, what if they fail? <laughs> What's plan B? Jesus says, there is no plan B. I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So in, in, uh, we'll, we'll look at these men later on, and there's, there's the list. And, you know, just one thing on the identity. Notice under Matthew, this, what humility. He's the only one that calls himself the tax collector. But if, if that was your past, your sinful past, you're going to raise your hand. That was me. That was me. Everybody hated me for doing the work of Rome. Um, no. And last is, is always the traitor, Judas Iscariot. And then we come down to Acts chapter 1, verse 13, and, it, and, it's, and it's missing. So let me just conclude this way. What's the theme? What's the big picture that we're heading into? He's going to give instructions. This is Jesus who saves his people from their sins, and we're going to come down to the bookends there around the gospel. All authority has been given to me. All authority. And he's commanding us to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And what are we supposed to teach them? To keep all I have commanded you. And look at this. Behold, I am with you always. There's a manual. There's a manual, even to the end of the age. So part of what he has given us instructions are, we understand there are two ordinances for the church. One is baptism. We will participate in that, Lord willing. Next week, we practice uh, uh, credo baptism by immersion. And this morning, we're going to practice the Lord's table. I come to this, I remind myself, I'm here by the grace of God, pure grace of God. It's not intellect. It's not social standing. It's not how much possessions you have. It's what God in his grace has done for guilty sinners. And if you have trusted the Lord Jesus Christ, we practice open communion. You are welcome to participate with us this morning.